And we are going to be digging into the book of Daniel chapter 8. And I'm dragging out my words so that if you don't know where Daniel is, you can look in the index and find the page number and turn there. Daniel chapter 8. And the book of Daniel is divided in half by theme. The first half is the historical autobiography of Daniel's time in Babylon. And it covers one major event per chapter across several decades. The second half of the book of Daniel records dreams and visions that Daniel received from God which prophesy the future, some of which have already unfolded exactly as God said they would and some that are still unfolding today. Last week we began our study of these dreams and visions by going through chapter 7 and we saw Daniel receive the same dream that King Nebuchadnezzar received in chapter 2, only Daniel's dream showed things from God's perspective, whereas Nebuchadnezzar showed things from man's perspective. Both dreams were about the four greatest empires the world would ever see and spoke of a coming fifth empire that will appear in the end times, the very times you and I are living in today. And we met the infamous man who will lead this final empire, the man known in pop culture as Antichrist. This week in chapter 8, Daniel's going to receive another vision. This one is going to further focus in on the Persian and Greek empires that were seen by Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and Daniel in chapter 7. And as was the case last week, Daniel's going to have a vision and then the angel Gabriel is going to explain to him what it means, what the interpretation is. So the best way we can begin is by simply reading through the whole chapter. We're just going to read beginning to end. And then we're going to break it down verse by verse after that. So if we read them, some things you don't understand, don't worry. We're going to go back and we're going to work our way through everything. So let's just read together and get the broad overview here. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. He's talking about chapter 7. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last, it grew up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, 
and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So let's break this down and go all the way back to verse 1 again, where it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So he receives this vision a couple of years after the vision he received in the previous chapter in chapter seven. It's during the Babylonian Empire, it's during Daniel's retirement season, and like chapter seven, this is happening sometime in the time period between the events of chapter four and chapter five. In fact, the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar was 551 BC to be exact. Then verse two, he says, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. In Daniel's vision, he's transported from Babylon to the capital of the Persian Empire, which at this time does not yet rule the world. 
he finds himself standing by a river which runs next to a palace which exists in real life and existed at that time, which was called Shushan or Susa. It's a citadel, which just means it's a fortified palace, and it was the main place where the kings of Persia would reside. It's about 230 miles east of Babylon in modern-day Iran. And so he's there, he's by this river, there is the capital of the Persian kings, and in verse 3 we read, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, underline the word ram, which had two horns, underline two horns, And the two horns were high, so they're abnormally large horns, but one was higher than the other, underline that. So he's almost seeing these two horns grow out of this goat's head. They both grow really large, but one grows taller than the other. In verse 20, if we look ahead to what we've already read, verse 20 says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And you might recall that in Daniel's vision in the previous chapter, the Medo-Persian Empire was seen as a beast that was like a bear and it was raised up on one side. And we see the same idea in this vision where there are two horns and one is higher than the other. The reason for this is the same in both visions, that while this empire began and was founded by the bi-ethnic leader Cyrus the Great, who was both a Mede and a Persian, after his death, the Persian side of that bicultural empire really became dominant and it really became just the Persian empire. So make a note of this on your outlines. The ram is the Medo-Persian empire and the higher horn is the Persians. So this ram represents the Medo-Persian empire and the higher horn represents the fact that the Persians are going to overwhelm the Medes in this combined empire. After about 12 years, 12 years from the time Daniel receives this vision, the Medo-Persians will conquer Babylon. And we read about the night that happened back in chapter 5. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing, and then underline, westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. In Daniel's previous vision, the beast that was like a bear, this Medo-Persian empire, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And we talked last week about how those three ribs represented the three main conquests of Cyrus the Great, which established the Medo-Persian Empire. And they happened to line up with those three geographical directions, westward, northward, and southward, but not eastward. Those are all directions that they went out in conquest from Susa or Shushan. They went to the north to Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey. They went to the south to conquer Egypt and Africa, and they went to the west to conquer Babylon. In both Daniel's vision of the bear in chapter 7 and his vision of the ram here in chapter 8, we see the same conquests. Verse 5, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, underline west, across the surface of the whole earth, and then underline without touching the ground. And the goat had a, and then underline, notable horn between his eyes. If we jump ahead again to verse 21, where Gabriel gives Daniel the interpretation, we read, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. 
So make a note of this, it's very, very simple. The male goat is the Greek empire and the large horn is Alexander the Great. It's Alexander the Great. History tells us that the goat was the symbol of the ancient Macedonians and that's who Alexander was. He was the son of a Macedonian, Philip II of Macedon. Even the Aegean Sea, which covers the eastern seaboard of Greece, means literally sea goat. You'll remember that in the previous chapter, the Greek empire was seen in Daniel's vision as a beast that was like a leopard that had the four wings of a bird. And we talked about how the leopard and the four wings speak of the defining characteristic of Alexander's military conquests, which was speed. He was able to conquer the known world with such a relatively small army because he was such a great tactician and he struck with such speed and such ferocity. In this vision, the Greek empire is seen as a male goat and it's moving so fast, it says it's like its feet are not even touching the ground. Its feet are not even touching the ground. Verse six, then he, Alexander the Great and the Greek empire came to the ram, which is the Persian empire that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. So even though the ram in nature is a larger and more powerful animal, this male goat charges right at it with an insane amount of speed and ferocity, which is exactly what Alexander did to the massive Persian empire. He took the fight right to them. Verse seven, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, underline attacked the ram, and broke his two horns, underline that. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So this is the time in history when Alexander the Great and his mostly Macedonian army conquer the Persian Empire. In May 334 BC, Alexander crosses the Hellespont, which is known today as the Dardanelles Strait. It's the small gap of water between Turkey and mainland Europe. He has 48,000 soldiers, around 6,000 cavalry, and a fleet of 120 ships manned by 38 thousand men and he is taking on on their home turf the army of Xerxes of two and a half million men. It's the first time he confronts them at the Battle of Granicus which is known today as the Bega River and he is victorious. It's the first of three battles that will determine the fate of the world and him defeating the Persian Empire. Just a year later in the spring of 333, the epic Battle of Issus near the northeastern tip of the Mediterranean Sea unfolds. Alexander is victorious again. The leader of that Medo-Persian army at that time, Darius III, flees from battle and leaves his troops to die without him. And then finally in October 331 BC, the Persians are broken at the Battle of Guagamela, which is located near Nineveh. That same leader, Darius III, fleeing again. Verse 8, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, underline this, when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. If you look ahead to verse 22, when Gabriel's explaining the vision to Daniel, he says, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. In other words, they're not gonna be as powerful as that one was. The same moment was spoken of in the previous chapter where Daniel recorded this about the Greek empire. 
The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. As you may have guessed, if you've been with us through our study of Daniel, this refers to the death of Alexander the Great, which was followed by the Greek Empire being divided up between Alexander's four generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. So make a note of this. The four notable horns are Alexander the Great's four generals who divide up his kingdom after his death. His four generals. But none of their kingdoms will ever be as great as Alexander's Greek empire. And so I want us to pause for a minute so that we don't just blast through this and miss out how incredibly precise this prophecy is. Gabriel tells Daniel 200 years before the Greek empire becomes anything even worth mentioning. He tells Daniel that the Greek empire is gonna conquer the Persian empire, even though it has an army of two and a half million men. And even at that time, though that would be like me saying, hey guys, listen, uh, this is heavy on my heart, but I need to tell you, the Lord has told me 200 years from now, the Alaskans are gonna come down and they're gonna sweep across Canada and no one's gonna be able to stop them and we're gonna become part of the Alaskan Empire. That's what's gonna happen. And then the Alaskans are gonna go into America and they're gonna rename the country. The whole thing is gonna be Alaska. It would be like that when Daniel receives this vision and says the Greeks are going to conquer it. They'd be like the who, the what? And then Gabriel tells Daniel that the Greek empire is gonna be led by one great king. And get how specific this is, who's going to die at the height of his power. Alexander, of course, dies at the height of his power, aged only 32. He dies in Babylon at Nebuchadnezzar's palace after conquering the known world by the age of 29. And then Gabriel tells Daniel that the Greek empire's first king, how's this for specific, is going to be replaced by four kings who will lead four kingdoms, but none of them will be as great as the first empire, which was led by the first king. Unbelievably specific, prophesied more than 200 years before these events happen. Are you grasping how ludicrously specific this prophecy is? This is why, I'm sorry about the buzzing, by the way, there's nothing I can do about it, so we'll just keep rocking. This is why many people for years held the opinion the book of Daniel must have been written by people other than Daniel and attributed to him years after Daniel lived because this is way too specific when it comes to world history. It can't have actually been written when they say it was written. Well, if you believe in Jesus, you know that it was because Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel in the Gospels and attributes the book of Daniel to the man, Daniel. There are many religions in the world and many so-called holy books. And God wanted to let people know that they could trust his word as the truth. He wanted to let them know his word was different. It is the truth. It's from the only living God. So how would God distinguish his holy book from all the other books that other religions claim to be holy. Well, he did what only he could do. He laid out future events in writing, in his word, and told us when these things happen, exactly as I've said they would, you'll know you can trust my word. There's no other holy book in the world that has done that or claims to do that. Only God can do that. That's why we're so passionate about Bible prophecy. We say, oh, you can't prove that any of these things are true. You can't prove God is real. Yeah, you can. Prophecy does in the Bible. There's no other explanation for its incredible accuracy. In Isaiah 46, I put this on your outline. The Lord says this of himself, I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In other words, God is saying, I'm the only one that can tell you the end, tell you the beginning, because I'm the one who controls all of that. So at this point, the text is going to begin to talk about the one known as Antichrist. We learned last week that after the church is removed from the earth, the coming event in the future known as the rapture, this one known as Antichrist is going to come on the world scene as a political leader. He's going to broker peace in the Middle East and rise to lead a new world order, a revived Roman Empire, if you will. And while everything will look great at first, after around three and a half years, he will enter the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, set up an idol of himself, and demand to be worshipped by the world as God, killing anyone who refuses his order. And we learned a lot more about that last week. If you missed it, go onto the website and catch up on that. We've talked before about types in the Bible. A type is a model of something else. We use this in everyday language. We have prototypes, we have stereotypes, we have archetypes. Something that's a prototype is not the actual thing. It's a model of something that is going to be built in the future. In the Bible, there are types. These are people who have part of their lives used by God, recorded in the Bible, to serve as a prophetic pattern of something that's going to happen in the future. People like King David and Joshua are good examples in the Bible. There are parts of their lives that are recorded in the Bible that show us a prophetic pattern of who Jesus would be when he would come on the scene later on. The text we're about to read is going to point to a leader who's going to come long after Daniel has lived, but has already come long ago in history from our perspective. This man is going to serve as a type of Antichrist. In other words, there are things that this leader has already done that serve as a prophetic pattern of what Antichrist will do in the future. Are you tracking with me? So part of his life actually predicts what Antichrist is going to be like. In the text we're about to read, we're going to encounter Antiochus IV. He's a leader who's part of history and serves as a type of the coming Antichrist. So make a note of this. While Antiochus IV serves as a type of this prophecy, it will ultimately be fulfilled by Antichrist. It will ultimately be fulfilled by Antichrist. And you're going to see when we get there that all the detail here is going to tell us a whole lot about this figure from history known as Antiochus IV, but it's also going to be talking about Antichrist. And we're going to find out that we can take that to the bank because Gabriel is going to tell Daniel specifically this vision relates to the end of days. It relates to the end times. So Jesus gave four of his disciples a private briefing on his second coming and end times events. They came to him and they said, Jesus, tell us about what's going to happen in the end. Tell us about when you're going to come back again. And he gave them a speech known as the Olivet Discourse, which we've studied together. And this is one of the things Jesus told them. He said, when, I put this on your outline, underline the word when. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So here's why this is important. The abomination of desolation was a historical event that had taken place a couple of hundred years before Jesus lived on the earth, more than 180 years before Jesus was talking to his disciples. It was an event, it was like their 9-11 basically. When you said the abomination of desolation, everyone knew you were talking about this event in history. So here's why this is interesting, because Jesus says, 
when you see the abomination of desolation that was predicted by Daniel the prophet. So Daniel lived before it and he predicted it. Jesus was on the earth after it and he points back to this event. But he says to his disciples, when you see. What's the tense of the word when? It's future tense. Not when you saw, when you see. In other words, it's coming again in the future. And so the reason Jesus told his disciples, when you see, the reason he put in the Bible, when you see, future tense, is because it was coming again in the future and was going to be done by Antichrist just as it had been done by Antiochus IV 180 years before this moment when Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Well, when we took our break, Daniel had seen these four notable horns, which were the four generals who divided up Alexander's empire. Let's pick it up back in verse 9. It says, and out of one of them came a little horn. The little horn of Daniel 7 came up from ten horns of the Roman Empire. This little horn is one coming out of four horns of the Greek Empire. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land is just a term for Israel in the Bible. So one of these four generals who took part of the Greek empire after Alexander's death will lead a kingdom that will start small but grow into a great kingdom and will move toward Israel, will want to conquer Israel. That empire, that kingdom, according to history, will be the Seleucid Empire founded by Alexander's general Seleucus. And the leader of the Seleucid Empire who will strike Israel will be Antiochus IV. He was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty from around 175 BC to 164 BC. He called himself, he nicknamed himself, which is never a good sign because you can't nickname yourself, right? He nicknamed himself Anybody else thinking of the Seinfeld episode where George tries to get himself called T-Bone and he ends up getting called Monkey Boy instead? That was, that was running through my head. It's usually why you don't nickname yourself. So he decided he was going to nickname himself Epiphanes, which means, get this, God manifest. That's what he said. He said, don't call me mister, don't call me sir, just call me God manifest. That's a term we can use between friends. In other words, I'm God in the flesh. That's the title he gave himself. The Jews on the street called him Epimenes, which means the madman. And he truly was insane. It's a clever play on words. He acquired his rule largely through flattery and bribery, which is a parallel to the incredible gift of speaking that Antichrist is going to have. And I'm going to share with you some more information about what Antiochus did to the temple, to Jerusalem, and to the Jews. This is going to be like the darkest story time you've ever been a part of. And I'm going to reference some quotes from the books of Maccabees, which are part of the Apocrypha. So before I do that, I feel like I need to just quickly explain what the Apocrypha is and, and why I'm going to be quoting from it. If you've heard of the Apocrypha, it's probably because it's part of the Catholic Bible. It consists of books that were written after the New Testament, but before the New Testament, so during that 400-year gap. In the late first century, it's believed that the leading Jewish rabbis got together to make a decision about which scriptures would become the Jewish Tanakh, which is what we call the Old Testament. We use the same Old Testament scriptures that the Jews were using in the first century AD. They got together and they decided that when it came to the books of the Apocrypha, they were good, they were useful, you should read them, they provide great history, but they have some 
theology, some doctrines, some teachings in them that do not line up with the rest of the Old Testament. And so they said we can't consider them to be Scripture. So in other words, the Apocrypha contains accurate history but some inaccurate theology. When the early church fathers got together to decide which books would be part of the New Testament, they reached the same conclusion regarding the books of the Apocrypha. Good history, sketchy theology. In 1611, when the King James Version of the Bible was first published, it included the Apocrypha in the middle, like a bonus section. For the next 20 years, it was illegal to print the King James Bible without the Apocrypha in the middle. But then in 1885, Protestants began to print the Bible without the Apocrypha. Why? Well, because after 1800 years, the Catholic Church looked at the Apocrypha and decided there were some things in it that now should be taken as Scripture. For 1800 years, the Catholic Church had had the same position as the Jewish rabbis and the early church fathers that good history, sketchy theology, but in the late 1800s, they began to say, no, there's, there's some really solid theology and we want to make what is in the Apocrypha Scripture. The reason for that is that some of the most essential Catholic doctrines exist only in the Apocrypha, doctrines like purgatory. You won't find purgatory anywhere in the Old Testament, anywhere in the New Testament. You will find it mentioned in 2 Maccabees, which is a book in the Apocrypha. Bottom line is this, it's the same as it's always been. It has some fascinating history. I encourage you to read it. It's pretty morbid, but it's very interesting from a historical perspective, but you can't take any theology or doctrines or teaching from it. So we're gonna use it today for its historical value. Here's where Antiochus becomes truly infamous if you're a student of the Bible. In 170 BC, Antiochus invades Egypt for the first time, defeats Ptolemy VI. On his way home from that conquest of Egypt, he goes through Israel, through Jerusalem specifically. He goes into the temple, he steals the golden altar and pretty much all the sacred items that are used for worship in the temple. He also steals all the treasure he can find, even stripping the gold from the front of the temple building itself. He also kills a bunch of Jews and boasts about it and leaves Israel grieving. Two years later, he sends his army back to Israel and Jerusalem. See if this sounds familiar. In 1 Maccabees it says, and we'll put it up on the screen, their commanders spoke to the people, and here's the important part, offering them terms of peace and completely deceiving them. Then he suddenly launched a fierce attack on the city, dealing it a major blow and killing many of the people. His army plunders the city, sets it on fire, tears down buildings, takes the woman and children prisoner, and takes all of the cattle. And then Antiochus builds a fortress in the middle of Jerusalem, and the city becomes filled with foreigners as most of the Jews flee for their lives. At this point, he issues a decree that everyone in the Seleucid Empire should be one people with one culture, one language, one set of customs, and one religion. Sound familiar? Most of the Jews end up going along with it. They end up worshiping pagan gods, offering sacrifices to idols. And then Antiochus takes it further. He orders that all Jewish religious festivals cease. Every holiday stops being observed. Every custom, no offerings of any kind in the temple. And the Sabbath is to be treated just like every other day. He goes even further because he has this deep-seated, we're going to find, satanically inspired hatred for the Jews. You see this throughout history if you study history. Different world leaders who just have a fixation on the Jews and a hatred of the Jews, which is just as crazy as it is today. They're one of the smallest people groups in the world. 
in one small tiny part of the world, but the amount of attention and hatred that they get all around the world makes absolutely no logical sense unless there's something spiritual going on, which there always is. So he hates the Jews and he orders the Jews to defile their own temple by building pagan altars and shrines in it and sacrificing pigs and unclean animals within the walls of the temple to pagan gods. Things get so bad they get to the point where they're holding pagan religious orgies inside the temple in Jerusalem. Jews were forbidden from circumcising their sons and were required to keep themselves ceremonially unclean in every possible way. And 1 Maccabees tells us why so that they would forget the law which the Lord had given through Moses and would disobey all its commands. Antiochus's goal is that the God of the Jews would be completely forgotten. There would not be even a vestige of him left in any corner of their daily life or culture, no matter how small. The penalty for not going along with this was simply death. And I find it very interesting that we just read last week that one of the things Antichrist will do will want to change times and law. He's going to want to get rid of any references to Christ even in the dating system. He's going to want to get rid of B.C. and A.D. because he's not going to want a dating system that exists around the birth of Jesus Christ. But the defining event of Antiochus' persecution of Israel was this event called the abomination of desolation. In the Bible, the word abomination is only ever used to refer to something God finds disgusting, offensive, and insulting to him, specifically worshiping an idol or any kind of false god. So the phrase abomination of desolation refers to some type of worship of a false god making a place physically and spiritually empty. So what was this event? In 1 Maccabees we read this. On the 15th day of the month of Kislev in the year 145, that's the Jewish calendar, King Antiochus set up the awful horror on the altar of the temple. The awful horror was an idol of either Zeus or Jupiter or an idol of Antiochus himself, depending on which sources you read. Because he serves as a type of antichrist and because Revelation 13 tells us antichrist will set up an image of himself in the rebuilt temple, I tend to believe that Antiochus did the same thing. It was an idol of himself. And so basically what he's doing is he's putting an idol of himself on the altar, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, and people all across Israel are going to build pagan altars and they're going to sacrifice unclean animals like pigs in honor of this idol that he's put in the Jewish temple. We read, and pagan altars were built in the towns throughout Judea. Pagan sacrifices were offered up in front of houses and in the streets. Any books of the law which were found were torn up and burned. Very interesting parallel to Kristallnacht, if you know what that is, which sparked the beginning of the Holocaust in World War II. And anyone who was caught with a copy of the sacred books or who obeyed the law was put to death by order of the king. So the horror reaches its pinnacle in this awful event known as the abomination of desolation. And you can read more about that in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. All of this, by the way, is also recorded by the highly respected um, scholar and historian Josephus. And you can read even more about the terrible things Antiochus did in 2 Maccabees chapter 5. So this all goes on from the first time Antiochus desecrates the temple to the end of all this. It goes on for about six and a half years. 
But around halfway through that time, this abomination of desolation event ends up being something so offensive that for a group of Jews, it's just too much. They cannot take it anymore. And he has ticked off the wrong group of people. It's a family known as the Maccabees. And it's a family of manly, bruising men, warriors and fighters. And they say, we cannot allow this to happen anymore. We can't allow this to happen to the temple of our God. We're ready to die for this. And they launch a guerrilla war against Antiochus IV and the Seleucid Empire, horribly outnumbered, living out in the wilderness. But incredibly, you cannot study the history without coming to the conclusion they are empowered by God supernaturally and they eventually manage to actually defeat Antiochus and the Seleucids on December 25th, 165 B.C., Jews celebrate that victory and the rededication, the cleansing of the temple which followed by marking the holiday we know today as Hanukkah. It celebrates the Maccabean revolt. There are so many parallels between Antiochus IV and what the Bible tells us about the coming Antichrist. I couldn't possibly go over them all in one message, but it's a very, very interesting study if you're into that sort of thing. So keep all that in mind. Antiochus as a type of the Antichrist as we read what Daniel is gonna be told in this vision about Antichrist. So what does this little horn do that grows out of the four, Antiochus the fourth? Verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Little bit of confusion about what this actually means. The explanation that makes the most sense to me is that verse 10 is telling us that the pride of Antiochus and Antichrist will be so great that it will extend all the way to heaven, which is a reference to Antiochus considering himself to be God, as Antichrist will as well. And both will be allowed to trample, to persecute, to overcome some of those who belong to the host of heaven. That's what Antiochus did to the Jews who are God's people, and it's what Antichrist will do to the Jews in the great tribulation. Verse 11, underline this, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, The literal translation is there is as high as the captain of the Lord's armies, which is who? It's Jesus. Joshua 5 is your reference on that. So this guy is exalting himself as high as heaven, as high as the position of God in heaven, claiming to be God. Antiochus will do that. Antichrist will do that. And by the way, the power behind both of those men, Satan, attempted to do the exact same thing which is what led him to become Satan in the first place. He attempted an insurrection to take the throne of God in heaven. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary, his there referring to God, the temple, was cast down. Just as Antiochus put an end to sacrifices in the temple, so too Antichrist will enter the temple at the beginning of the great tribulation and do the same thing, ending sacrifices, declaring that he's now the God who must be worshipped. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Antiochus used military force to stop the Jews from worshiping their God at the temple and making sacrifices. And we're told that he did all this and prospered. In other words, God permitted this to go on for a time because God was doing something bigger. And the same will be true of Antichrist. He's going to use a military force and a police surveillance state, is what the Bible says, to enforce his mark and his worship. It's so interesting that 50 years ago, when you talked about the mark of the beast and you said, how, 
How is he going to know who's taken the mark and who hasn't? How is he going to know who's worshiping him and who doesn't? We live in a world right now where your freaking TV is listening to you. That happens right now. I don't have to stand here and tell you now, guys, I know this is trippy, but imagine a future where the government is spying on you all the time. I know it's way out there, but if you're conspiratorial at all, you know that in the most recent WikiLeaks dump, which came out two weeks ago, it was revealed the code names of all the programs that the CIA is running, which is collecting data from people's cell phones all the time and how it won't even turn on the little light in your phone so that you don't know that they've activated, that they have that technology right now. They're filtering data all the time, listening for specific key words. We're there right now. And the Bible says Antichrist is going to use that type of system to find out who's not actually worshiping him, who's talking about Jesus in their homes, who's not getting with the program. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, that's just an angel, and another holy one, another angel, said to the certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Here's what's interesting. The phrase transgression of desolation can also be translated abomination of desolation. So in Daniel's vision, here's what's really happening. Daniel is just like this. He's like, and the angels are like, Daniel, there's a question you should be asking. Never mind. Okay. How long, O angel, will these events be allowed to go on for? That's what's happening here. Verse 14, and he said unto me, underline for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. That comes out to be a period of just under six and a half years, which is around the same amount of time between the date Antiochus begins terrorizing Israel and the date when Israel was cleansed and the temple was cleansed following the Maccabean revolt. Now, I need to be upfront with you. We don't have exact dates from history on that. We only know approximate ones. So I can't tell you emphatically it was exactly 2,300 days, but it makes sense to me. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're in the ballpark there. So write this down. 2,300 days is roughly the same length of time that passes between Antiochus IV first desecrating the temple and the Maccabees rededicating it. So this is allowed to go on for six and a half years. Verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. The next verse is going to tell us who this man is. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel Make this man understand the vision. So God speaks to the angel Gabriel and says, explain this to Daniel. So the one having the appearance of a man is Gabriel, a high-ranking angel who's mentioned multiple times by name in the Bible. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, which is just a term referring to someone being human, that, and then underline this, the vision refers to the time of the end. This is so important. God's angel Gabriel tells Daniel and us 
that his vision relates to the end times. It doesn't just relate to the empires of the ram and the male goat, the Persian and Greek empires. The purpose of the vision is to give us insight into Antiochus IV, who serves as a type of the coming Antichrist. So when someone says, oh, Daniel 8 is just about empires that have already come and gone, and it's just talking about Antiochus IV, you can say, well, not according to the angel Gabriel, who told Daniel, quote, the vision refers to the time of the end, which is not an ambiguous statement. That's how we know that all this talk is not just about Antiochus IV, it's also about Antichrist who is yet to come. Verse 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. You know, when I read that, at first I was really encouraged because I thought, man, you know, if people fall asleep when even Gabriel preaches, then I'm doing really good. But then I, then, I, then I found out that that phrase, deep sleep, it just means Daniel passed out. He was basically so overwhelmed, he just passed out. And uh, we hear that, and then we, we picture Daniel being stood up on his feet, but the Hebrew language is such that when it says, I was made to stand on my feet, it can actually mean that he was given understanding in that moment. He was enabled by God to understand this. Verse 19 And he, Gabriel, said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen. Now, let's not be redundant, but Gabriel thinks we should in underline the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. So Gabriel gets even more specific, and he tells Daniel, not only does this relate to the end times, but it relates to the specific time of the indignation. The indignation in the Bible is the three and a half time period, the last three and a half years of the end times, known as the Great Tribulation. So he's getting even more specific here. So write this down. Gabriel tells Daniel that his vision relates to more than the Persians, Greeks, and Antiochus IV. It relates specifically to the great tribulation in the end times, in the end times. And Gabriel also lets Daniel know that at the appointed time, the end shall be. In other words, and I love this, in other words, there's a pre-planned time for these things to unfold. There's a pre-planned time when these end times events will take place. These are not things that may happen. These are not things that could happen. These are things that will happen exactly as the Lord said, exactly in his word, exactly as Antiochus IV did all these things. And are you picking up in these couple of verses how the Holy Spirit is being intentionally repetitive, which he only does when it's really important? He's really hammering the fact to Daniel and to you and I, the reader, that these events relate to the end times because he does not want us to be confused about the fact that what Daniel is seeing contains information about the end times. Verse 20, the ram which you saw having the two horns and then underline, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And then underline verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Alexander the Great is the first king of the Greek empire. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, underline, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Just as the first king Alexander was replaced by four generals. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. This is talking about Antiochus IV. Having fierce features who, and then underline, understands sinister schemes. I'm gonna to suggest to you he's a bad guy. 
Verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but get this, but not by his own power. He's gonna be mighty, he's gonna have great power, but not because he is powerful, because his power is gonna be given to him by something or someone else. And what did we learn last week? We learned that Antichrist will get his power from Satan. In Revelation 13, we read, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So too, it's clear from Antiochus' fixation on harming the Jews that he was demonically inspired. And from the historical accounts of his madness and insanity, I have to conclude that he was possessed. I don't know if he was possessed by Satan himself, as Judas Iscariot was, as Antichrist will be. But I do know that throughout history, this Antichrist spirit has shown up in certain leaders, and you can identify it by that leader's irrational hatred of the Jews. You see it even during the Jewish purging of Spain, where the king and queen of Spain just decide, all the Jews need to get out of Spain. And if you're not out of Spain by this date, we're gonna murder you, we're confiscating everything you know. Why them, why the Jews? It's because this antichrist spirit shows up throughout history and often those same leaders deal with bouts of insanity and when you combine the two, an irrational hatred of God's people with mental instability, it's almost certain that they were possessed. You have Caesar Nero who rode his chariot naked around his garden, shrieking like a madman under the lights of Christians being burned as human candles. Hitler, who history tells us would shout at the voices in his head at night, wandering around his mountaintop retreat. Antiochus IV, and on and on and on we could go. Then we read, he shall destroy fearfully. That just means with incredible power. And shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Antiochus IV is permitted by God to destroy many of the Jews in Israel as Antichrist will be permitted by God to destroy two out of every three Jews during the Great Tribulation. There is a Great Tribulation coming and that's according to Jesus himself in Matthew 24. And the purpose of the Great Tribulation, the Bible says, is to open the eyes of Israel to who their Messiah was and is. It's Jesus. In Hosea 5.15, the Lord says this, He says, I will return again to my place. So if he's gonna return to his place in heaven, then he has to have left it, right? He says, I'll return to my place. He's gonna return to heaven, speaking of the Jews, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's going to happen through the events of the great tribulation. The Jews are gonna turn to Jesus. Verse 25, through his cunning, the literal word there is policy, through his policy, he shall cause deceit or craft to prosper under his rule. We know from the book of Revelation that Antichrist will institute the mark of the beast, the mark on one's hand or forehead that will indicate your allegiance to Antichrist, that you agree that he is God and he should be worshiped. We know from the Bible that you're not gonna be able to buy and sell without it, which means that in Antichrist's empire, whatever it looks like, this revived Roman empire, there will be a common currency and economic system, which most likely will result in great financial prosperity for a time. His diplomatic peace plans and economic reforms will for a time seem wonderful, leading many people into prosperity. Then we read, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. When you declare yourself to be God, I think the description fits. He shall destroy many 
and then underline in their prosperity or while they are at ease. So things are going to seem great. People are going to seem like they're prospering, but they're going to be destroyed while they're prospering. We know from other passages in the Bible, Antichrist will not be a military leader at first. He'll be a peacemaker. He's going to broker peace in the Middle East, doing what seems impossible to us. He shows up in Revelation 6 as the rider on the white horse, the first of the four so-called horsemen of the apocalypse. And even believers will read Revelation 6 and go, aha, a white horse, got to be a good guy. Well, not really if you look at the company he's keeping because he's riding with pestilence and death and things like that, the other three horsemen. The peace that he brings will be a false peace that won't last and will usher in the worst season of history the world has ever seen. We read, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. The prince of princes is the king of kings, lord of lords, it's Jesus. Antichrist is going to be characterized by his hatred of Jesus and anything to do with Jesus. Jews, Christians, the temple, Jerusalem, Israel, etc. But he shall be broken without human means. Underline, broken without human means. In other words, God himself is going to take him out. Going to take him out. We read this last week in Daniel 7 where it says this. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Antichrist is gonna be destroyed, Jesus is gonna reign. So here's what we've learned about Antichrist in Daniel 8. He's gonna persecute and kill Jews and all who oppose him in great numbers. He's going to claim to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. He's going to end daily sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to desecrate and defile the temple. He's going to use the military to enforce his false religion. He's going to declare war on truth. And he's going to prosper and succeed for a season in all of these things. He's going to be a mighty leader whose strength comes from Satan. He's going to be a brilliant strategist, highly intelligent. He's going to seem to be bringing peace and prosperity and he's going to be destroyed by God himself and he's going to come up again in chapters 9 and 11. Verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision for it refers to, just in case we haven't got this yet, underline many days in the future. So the last thing that Daniel's told about this vision is that it's not for Daniel's time. It's not for his lifetime, it's for a time that's coming in the future. There were people, and there still are people, who said for centuries, Daniel 8 has to be allegorical. It can't be literal. It has to be referring to the spirit of Antichrist, but not an actual person. And their main reason for holding that position was that the things in this chapter could only happen if Israel was an actual nation. You can't persecute Jews in Israel if there is no Israel and there's no Jews there. And for almost 2,000 years, that was the case. But in 1948, it became reality. Israel became a nation again. So, so really understand with me here. Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He referred to it as a future event, even though it had happened 180 years before he said that. Jesus believes these things are future events that are yet to come. And people today may scoff because in order for Daniel 8 to be true, something very unique has to happen. The temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But listen, if God can make Israel exist again as a political nation after 2,000 years, I don't think the temple being rebuilt is a really big problem. I think it's time we give God the benefit of the doubt 
and started trusting that he's able to do what he says he's going to do. Fairly recent archaeological discoveries have actually found that the site of the original temple was most likely on a spot of the temple mount that is currently empty. So why is that a big deal? Well, because it means that it would be possible to rebuild the temple on the biblical historical location of the temple without touching the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, which currently sits on the Temple Mount. You could build them both and put a wall up between them. Very, very interesting. And if you'll check out templeinstitute.org, you'll find an Israeli organization who has assembled all of the implements and instruments needed in the temple, made out of gold, and they've got them all together, ready to go for the temple to be rebuilt. They have traced bloodlines so that they have the right people from the right tribes ready to minister in the temple. They've got the right animals bred ready to be sacrificed. They are ready to go. A rebuilt temple is much, much closer than we realize. And it's my opinion that one of the things Antichrist is going to do that's going to allow him to broker peace in the Middle East is that he's going to arrange for the temple to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days, and afterward, and then underline this phrase, I love it, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. The fact that Daniel says no one understood it is interesting to me because it tells me that he must have shared it with other people. If other people didn't understand it, he must have tried to tell them about it. Why didn't they understand it? Because Daniel wasn't supposed to share it with them. What did Gabriel tell Daniel to do? Seal up the vision. Why? For it refers to many days in the future. Well, I only have one more thing. I was going to do it if I have time. It's a really, really interesting story from history, and I wonder if you would indulge me and allow me to share it with you. I mean, what are you going to say? I'm the one with the microphone, right? Okay. Overwhelming positive reaction noted. Okay, let's go. So the venerated Jewish historian Josephus writes this collection of books called Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, Josephus uh, is a Jew who works for the Roman Empire and is employed as a historian. And he documents all these wars and events that affected the nation of Israel and the Jews. And he records this incredible event that happened that relates to Daniel 8 and Alexander the Great. This unfolded around 332 BC. Here's what we know for sure from history. We know that Alexander the Great, on his way from his empire in Macedonia to conquering Egypt, went through Israel and went through Jerusalem. And he went through a whole bunch of other cities, conquering them, destroying them along the way. But we know from history that even though he went through Jerusalem, he didn't touch it. He left it unscathed. He didn't kill anybody in the city. We know that from history. Josephus records what he says is a story of how that came to be. So let me read it to you. I'm actually going to read the original here. If the language is a little tough, I think we'll still pick it up. Because what happens is it's the night before Alexander is going to reach Jerusalem. People are terrified. Jaduah, who is the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem at that time, is terrified. So Jaduah ordained that the people should make supplications. In other words, he tells them, guys, pray. This is all we can do. And join with him in offering sacrifice to God, whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon, so then what happened, God warned him in a dream. The night before Alexander comes, Jaduah has a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage and adorn the city, decorate the city, and open the gates. 
that everybody else in the city, the rest should appear in white garments, but he and the priests should meet the king, Alexander, in the habits proper to their order. In other words, wear their priestly robes. Without the dread of any ill consequences, which the providence of God would prevent. In other words, God says, I'm gonna protect you. Upon which, when he rose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning he had received from God. According to the dream, he acted entirely. He did everything just as God told him to in the dream and so waited for the coming of the king. But when he understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable. In other words, it was serious. And the manner of it different from that of other nations. It reached to a place called Sapha, which name translated into Greek signifies a prospect for you have thence a prospect, a view, both of Jerusalem and of the temple. And when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him thought they should have liberty to plunder the city and torment the high priest to death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them. In other words, the guys riding with Alexander thought they'd get to plunder the city, kill the high priest, because that's what usually happened. The very reverse of it happened. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priests stood clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, his crown on his head, having the golden plate whereon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name, and first saluted the high priest. The Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass about him. They came around him. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him disordered in his mind. However, Parmenio alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews. To whom he replied, I did not adore him, but that God who has honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians." So what's happened is Alexander the Great had a dream in which he saw the high priest of Jerusalem specifically dressed exactly in those robes, and in his dream, the high priest told Alexander, go conquer the Persians, it's going to happen. Whence it is that, having seen no other in that habit, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision, and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct, and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And when he had said this to Parmenio and had given the high priest his right hand, the priests ran along by him and he came into the city. And when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was shown him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians. So the priest shows him Daniel chapter eight, what we've just read where it says the Greeks will conquer the Persian. Alexander supposed that himself was the person intended. He says, I'm the goat. 
And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day he called them to him and bid them ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. In other words, Alexander says, what can I do for you? I'm blessed because of you. And they say, let us keep observing our Jewish customs, including every seventh year, the year of rest. And he granted all that they desired. And when they entreated him that he would permit the Jews in Babylon and Media to enjoy their own laws also. So they go even further and say, and Alexander, would you let the Jews in Babylon and in Media also observe our Jewish customs? He willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. And when he said to the multitude that if any of them wanted to enlist themselves in his army on this condition that they should continue under the laws of their forefathers and live according to them, he was willing to take them with him. So in other words, he says, if you want to join my army, I'll let you keep observing your own customs as well. Many were ready and joined him in his wars. So Alexander spares Jerusalem after Jeduah the high priest shows him the prophecy of Daniel 8, which says by name that a great Greek king will conquer the Medo-Persian empire. Pretty incredible stuff. Next week, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, which contains the most amazing and precise prophecy in the entire Bible. If this was the only prophecy in the Bible, it would be enough for you to know that the Bible is true. It's supernatural and it's concrete proof. And if you're familiar with it, take the time to become even more familiar with it because it's that important. So how are we supposed to respond to a prophecy like this? I think what we're supposed to do is step back and say, Lord, you really do have it all under control. Everything you tell me in your word is really true. You've told me to live for heaven. You've told me that the most profitable way to live is for heaven and not for the riches of this life. So I know that that must be true. That must be the best way to live. So we are to do what Daniel does. He says, I arose and I went about the king's business. I went about the king's business. Make sure that your life is about living for King Jesus. Because as surely as these things have come to pass and will come to pass, so too the person who takes the advice and exhortation of the Bible and lives for Jesus wholeheartedly and lives for treasure in heaven and lives for the kingdom of Jesus, just as much as these things have happened and will happen, that person will spend eternity being glad that they live for Jesus or you'll spend eternity regretting that you did not. That even though he gave proof in his word that what he says will happen will happen, you chose to ignore it. And you'll wish forever that you had lived more passionately for Jesus. So the invitation is to do what Daniel did, which is arise and be and go about the king's business. Make your life about the business of Jesus. It's the best way to live. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your word. It is powerful and it is true. And thank you that even though you don't owe us any evidence or any explanation, you have proven yourself across history through prophecy in your word. And so, Father, we step back this evening and we go, here's what I know for sure. I know that every word Jesus says to me is true. Every single word. For any of us this evening who are wrestling with challenges in life and wondering, how's God going to get me through this? How's he going to get me through this season? How's he going to get me through this doubt? How's he going to get me through this trial? How's he going to do it? 
I want to invite you to rest in the simple truth that God holds all things, including you, in his hands. You are not in the one circumstance he wasn't thinking about when he said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. You're not the one exception to that promise. You're not the one exception to Romans where it says he causes all things to work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You're not the one exception. He had you, he had your situation in mind, and he made that promise. If God can control history, and if he can keep his word across millennia, he can keep his word in your life today. And so I want to invite you just to rest in that. And if you're wrestling with doubts, use this coming time of worship and communion just to thank God that his word is true and he's with you. You don't even need to ask him to be with you. He already said he would. Just thank him that he is because it's true. It's true. Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are the sure foundation we can build our lives upon. And even though it seems as though our lives could go in a million different directions, we know exactly where we're going to end up. At your feet, in your presence, enjoying you forever. So while there may seem to be great uncertainty moment to moment, there is absolute certainty about our destination and about the final outcome. Thank you for the security of our salvation, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.